0: Everybody, welcome to Dig Deep. I am a crier. Who else in this room is a crier? Thank you. To all you non-criers, we know you don't understand us, but it's okay. We love you anyway. I'm a crier. In fact, my mom's whole side of the family, Aunt Penny, I'm looking at you. We seem to have a genetic predisposition to crying. At everything, happy tears, sad tears, nostalgic tears. We joke that Wilsons, including the men, can't get through a toast without crying. And I love it. And maybe that's why I married a crier, and he is the strongest and most sensitive man that I know. And the other night, we were watching a show, and a commercial came on that I had seen before that Ben had never seen. I don't know if you've seen this commercial where... It's a young teenage girl who has to transition to living with her grandparents as she finishes high school. And at first, the grandfather is a little ruffled by this new arrangement. He was settled, settling into his new retirement lifestyle, and this was a big change for him. But then he and his granddaughter start to bond, and then the commercial ends with her going out to the driveway, and there is a new car sitting there. And she turns to her grandfather and says, but Grandpa, what about your dream car? And he says this is my dream now. And I look over at Ben, and his eyes are full of tears. And I said, are you crying? And he just points at the screen and says, that's his dream now. (laughs) He's a crier. I said this a couple weeks ago, but I really appreciate that Joseph is a crier. He is. Joseph is a crier, and his eyes don't just get a little red and misty. He weeps. He weeps when he first sees his 10 brothers, and then when he sees Benjamin for the first time, and when he finally reveals his identity to his brothers, he weeps. And now his father Jacob has packed up his entire extended family and moved to Egypt. All of his sons have had children, and there's over 70 people that are all moving their entire lives to this new country, over 400 miles of travel. And then we read in Genesis 46, verse 29, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Remember, we know from the text that Joseph is a handsome man, and now he's pretty much the most powerful man in Egypt, and he is having his chariot made ready. I mean, this is something straight out of Gladiator. He is a picture of masculine strength, but his heart is soft, And we read in verse 29, as soon as Joseph appeared before him, his father, he threw his arms around him and wept for a long time. Joseph weeps. He's weeping probably with joy from the reunion, but also with grief over the years and years lost. Today, we are focusing on this Ending of Joseph's story where his relationships are finally being restored. You guys covered a lot of ground in your homework this week. You covered Jacob traveling to Egypt with all of his family and then Joseph providing for his family. He provides them with land, with jobs, with food so that they don't starve because the famine is still going on. And Jacob reaches the end of his years and he gives formal blessings to each of his sons. And we're going to talk about that next week in our closing session. And then Jacob dies peacefully, surrounded by his family, at the age of 147. In Genesis 47, verse 28, we learn that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years. The years of his life were 147. And isn't it interesting that in their relationship, the only years that they spent together were the first 17 years of Joseph's life and the last 17 years of Jacob's life. So many years lost in between, so much to grieve. So they prepare Jacob's body for burial. They mourn the loss of his presence in their lives. And then they travel to Canaan as they promised him to bury him in his homeland. And when they return, the brothers are afraid. We opened this whole semester by talking about how relationships unravel and that relationships are at the center of all of our stories. And as we come to the end of Joseph's story, we see that these fractured relationships, these relationships with so much history, are still very much central to Joseph's story. They return from burying Jacob, and the brothers are afraid. Why? Because they wonder if Joseph was only being kind to them for their father's benefit, the father who he loved. Maybe he's just been waiting for dad to die to finally punish us for the horrible things that we did to him. Here's what they say in Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph Wept. My man, cry it out, Joseph. (laughs) Joseph and Ben totally would have been friends. When I read this passage, the first thing I wonder is are the brothers lying here? I mean, it seems like they're lying, that they're making this up to try to manipulate Joseph into forgiving them. We don't know that for sure because the text doesn't explicitly state that, but that's what it seems like to me. But either way, They send word to him. This may have been a letter, maybe a messenger bringing this message to him. They are so afraid that they want to put these layers between themselves and him because they are afraid of what he might do. And whether they're lying or not, and whether it was a letter or a messenger, the bottom line is they are begging Joseph to forgive them. And we've talked about this before. We talked about it even last semester, that forgiveness is not some ethereal concept. Forgiveness is a tangible exchange between two people. One person wronged the other one, and now they owe a debt. And the brothers understand that. It's right in the passage. They say, what if Joseph holds a grudge and pays us back? And they know that they need forgiveness. They need to be pardoned for the wrong that they did him. They know that they owe him a debt. And forgiveness, as we've said before around here, is saying to the other person, debt canceled. And we don't know how much time passes between them sending that message to Joseph and coming into his physical presence, but we read in verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Can you imagine what Joseph must have felt when they said those words? We are your slaves. If your relational wounds are anything like mine, then you probably have a few buzzwords that have become tethered to your pain. Maybe it's a word that someone spoke to you, maybe it's a label that someone gave you, and you can still hear. That person may be speaking that word in slow motion. It is ingrained in your memory. And I'm guessing for Joseph, slave was one of those words. I'm guessing that when he looked at his brothers lying on the ground before him saying, we are your slaves, he's hearing Judah's voice when he was down in that pit as a 17-year-old kid, hearing Judah say, why don't we sell him? I'm guessing he's remembering the sound of the coins falling into his brother's hands as he's tied up and taken away from his home country to live a life of slavery. I wouldn't be surprised if he's remembering the sound of Potiphar's wife's voice as she wrongfully accuses him of a crime and doesn't even call him by his name, but says, that Hebrew slave that you brought here. This word slave is a heavy word This carries a lot of emotional weight for Joseph personally. It defined so much of his pain. And now, here were the men responsible for all those years of pain, bowing before him and offering to pay their debt by becoming slaves themselves. And i got to tell you, if I had been in the room and they said, we are your slaves, I would have said, oh, yeah, you are. What goes around comes around. Karma, guys. It's probably for the best that I wasn't in the room. But we all know that feeling, don't we? Last week when Stacia talked about the section where Joseph says, don't be angry with yourselves, I think, what? When someone has wronged me, I want them to be very angry. Angry with themselves. I want them to lose sleep over what they did to me. But he tells them, don't be angry with yourselves. We want, we crave that repayment, that revenge. We think it's going to feel so good in that moment for that person to pay the debt that they owe us. Several years ago, I worked with a wonderful woman who had raised her now adult daughter completely on her own as a single mother after her husband left her for his mistress. And she told us all one day that in a moment of passion, as he was packing his things, preparing to leave, she said to his mistress, may God strike you down for what you have done to this family. And no lie, a couple months later, the woman was struck by lightning. And you know what? My co-workers loved that story. They wanted her to tell it again. They were like, oh man, she got, can you believe it? And there is something so ugly in all of us, if you're being honest, you all look so, maybe I'm the only horrible person here. You're like, that's terrible. But there is something in us, in the darkest parts of us, that's like, yeah, you know what? She got what she deserved. I think there's something in us that just, even if just a little bit, we want people to suffer the way that we have suffered, the way that they've made us suffer. Joseph's brothers say, we are your slaves. How tempting must it have been to say, yeah, that sounds about right. Now I'm going to sell you all off. You're never going to see your families again. You're going to be abused and neglected, and you might be wrongfully accused of a crime and thrown in dungeon, your word won't be worth much after all because you'll be a slave, and I'll never try to find out what happened to you, and I'll lie to your family so they all don't come looking for you. He has them right in front of him on a silver platter, and they know they deserve it. And he has the power to make them slaves for the rest of their lives, and he doesn't. He cancels their debt. See, Joseph is so wise because he knows there is nothing, there is nothing they could do to pay him back for what he lost. Making his brother slaves would do absolutely nothing to heal his own wounds. So, just as we did week one of this semester, I want you to take a quick inventory of your relationships. Is there a relationship in your life right now that needs to be restored? And I want you to ask yourself the question, what does that person owe me? What did they take from you? And then ask, what would it look like to cancel that debt? And maybe it's to just stop praying that that person gets what they deserve. Maybe it's stopping dragging that person's name through the mud in an effort to get everyone on your side or to punish them in that way. Or maybe it's even more subtle than that in your heart. Do you secretly celebrate when that person suffers or fails, or do you get annoyed or angry when that person celebrates a win? If so, then in your heart, you are trying to make them pay the debt that they owe you. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. It's saying, you don't owe me. You don't owe me. Joseph cancels the enormous debt his brothers owe him. They're face down on the ground, offering to pay for their sins with a lifetime of slavery. And he says to them in verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. These are the most important words that Joseph speaks, I think, in this entire story. It's also one of the toughest verses in the Bible for me. God intended it for good. I've wrestled with this word intended. The Hebrew word pronounced kashav has roots meaning to weave, to devise, to plot, And it's all very mysterious, but ultimately Joseph is saying that God's sovereignty over our lives is mysterious, but we have to acknowledge, as Joseph did, that he is taking the threads of our lives and masterfully weaving them into something beautiful despite all of the brokenness. And Joseph is saying that has been true of his life, that God has taken everything, even the brokenness, and he has woven it into something beautiful, something full of life, something that is offering life to other people. Joseph doesn't put himself in the wrong seat in the story. Stacia did such a beautiful job last week of walking us through this perspective that Joseph has, where he's able to see himself in the correct place in his story, that he's a small part of something much bigger that God is doing. And here in these verses, again, he acknowledges that he is not God and that God allows things for reasons that we may never understand this side of heaven. He understands that it's God's job to punish sin, not his. And that frees him up to say, you don't owe me anything. Debt canceled. But Joseph doesn't stop there. In verse 21, he says to them, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph doesn't just let them off the hook, letting them walk with their freedom. He provides for them. He gives generously to them, land and jobs and food. And I think that what we see in Joseph's life here, we will see in any relationship restoration is someone saying, debt canceled, you don't owe me anything, and then giving generously, saying, I am for you. You know, in the story, I think it's interesting that we never hear from Potiphar's wife again. We don't really know what happened in that little side story. Joseph probably had the power to chop her head off if he wanted to, and as far as we know... He didn't do that. We also get the sense that he doesn't become best friends with them either. But I think it's interesting to consider that if Potiphar and his wife still live in Egypt at the time that Joseph comes to power in the time of the famine, they would have benefited from Joseph's leadership. He would have saved their lives, too, from the famine. What do you have to give to the person who wronged you. I think this is going to look different in every relationship. Maybe it's an invitation to get coffee. Maybe it's a kind word. Maybe it's a kind word about them when they're not around. Maybe it's a place in your life. Maybe it's not a place in your life. Maybe it's just peace with distance between you. Maybe it's a place at your table at the holidays. I loved... Ashley's blog this week. You guys know Ashley Tipperman is a writer and blogger, and she's one of our wonderful small group leaders. And every week she sends out our weekly emails and um, attaches her blog entry that just marries so well with the message for that week. And in this last week's blog entry, I just loved her beautiful picture of her relationship with her dad, a relationship which in different seasons has been a relationship in need of restoration. And how for her, the picture that comes to mind is making him his favorite breakfast as a high school student, eggs benedict. Maybe it's that simple. But that person in your life, that relationship that needs restoration, if I were to call them on the phone today and ask them if they feel like you are for them, what would they say? Maybe asking that question will help you come to the answer of what it is that you can do, what it is that you have to give to that person that would lead them to say, yes, I know that she is for me because it's here in this tangible expression of love that she has given me, love that I don't deserve. I said it week one and I'm gonna say it again, I believe that no relationship is beyond the hope of restoration, of redemption, And listen, if your situation is particularly painful or complicated, or especially if it's dangerous in any way, please seek the help of a professional, licensed Christian counselor or your pastor to help you navigate that restoration. Be wise with the way that God is leading you and the boundaries that you need to put in place. But I believe that no relationship is beyond the hope of redemption. And I do think that in any relationship restoration, we will see the same pattern that we see here in Joseph's story, the pattern of someone saying, debt canceled, you don't owe me anything, and then giving generously, saying, I am actually for you. What would happen to your relationships if you live that way. Let's see what happens to Joseph's relationships. In verse 22, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Makir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am about to die.'" But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dies an old man at peace. He's surrounded by his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren and his brothers. We don't know how many of his brothers outlived him, but the ones that were still alive were right there by his side. A family united, relationships restored, a man at peace. That is the life that God wants for us, even in this broken world where relationships get messed up. He wants to give us a life of peace in our hearts. I know that this road to restored relationships will be a hard one, but it is worth the work. It's worth saying, you don't owe me anymore, and I am for you. And praise God that that's what he did for us through Jesus. He canceled the debt that we all owed by paying it himself through the life and death and resurrection of his only son. See, that's the reality of what it looks like to cancel a debt. I I don't want you to get the impression that this is going to be like easy or a one-time thing, or then it's just going to, you're going to feel great and, and go bounding down the street. When you cancel someone's debt against you, you eat that cost yourself. You live with the pain and the other person walks free. And that's what Jesus did for us. But he doesn't stop there. After he lets us walk free, he then leads us to life. He gives us good gifts as his children. He forgives us again and again and again. By his blood, he says, you don't owe me anymore, and I am for you. On the night that he was betrayed, He was eating his last supper with his disciples when he held up a goblet of wine and he says, This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for forgiveness. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what God did to restore our relationship with him. And that's painful. Jesus wept. Joseph wept. The road to restored relationships is often full of pain and struggle and awkwardness and tears, and it's often a long, long road. It might span months or years or decades, but it is the road that leads to life. And I will tell you that I have walked the road of restored relationships in my marriage, with family members, with friends, and with the church, and I can tell you that it involved a lot of tears, but that it is the way that leads to life, both for you and for the other person. And I want to be a woman that when she dies, like Joseph, is surrounded by those she loves, at peace in all of my relationships, all of them. And that's the life that is only possible in Christ. So I want to give you guys some discussion questions for this morning. There's four of them this morning. The first is, what relationship in your life needs restoration? I'm guessing the person has already come to mind for you, so that'll probably be an easy one to answer. And what do they owe you? What would it look like to cancel that debt? Look for some practical steps that you can take And then the last question, question four, how can you communicate to that person, I am for you? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the beautiful relational restoration that we see in this story. We are amazed that Joseph could forgive his brothers after everything that they did to him. But I'm grateful for the honest picture that it's not easy, that it makes him weep and grieve and that it takes them years to get there. But I thank you for the example in his life. And more than that, I thank you so much for the sacrifice, Jesus, that you made to restore our relationship with you. Help us to live in that reality each day, and from there, go and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters, to those around us, to enjoy the peaceful lives of restored relationships. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.